This is Paul Toscano, and I'm going to read a speech entitled Intellectuals, Feminists, and Homosexuals. It's a speech I gave in 1995 at the Mormon Women's Conference in Salt Lake City. It contains uh, a, a number of uh, out-of-date references, but I'm going to read the speech as I gave it back then. As a Mormon excommunicant who sometimes wishes he had the faith of his youth, I feel I should explain myself by telling you what kind of former Mormon I am, and then what has been the nature of my conflict with the LDS Church. My current beliefs can best be stated through a series of negations. I am not a fundamentalist. I am too uncertain about the scriptures, Mormon prophecy, doctrine, and ritual, and the promises of salvation, and I have a strong distaste for polygamy. I'm not a mainstream or conservative Mormon because I do not believe LDS leaders are trustworthy spiritual guides or that church membership is a prerequisite to salvation. I'm not a liberal because I do not believe in the reliability of rationalism, the virtue of humanism, the efficacy of philanthropy, or the goodness of humanity. I'm not a New Ager because I do not care for my inner child. I don't believe in myself. I find the view that my true center is divine to be nauseatingly sentimental. I do not believe in self-atonement or in self-salvation. I am not an intellectual. To think of myself as such would be an obvious slander on real intellectuals everywhere. People who know me know how suspicious I am of reason and calculation. I'm not a cultural Mormon because Mormon culture holds no fascination for me. I'm not a displaced 19th century Mormon because I do not view the Mormon past with any real affection. I am interested in Mormon history but do not see it as a golden age, probably because I lack interest in the American West generally, possibly since my ancestors were never a part of it, but more likely because I sense in early Mormonism a swaggering certainty that I associate with authoritarianism. If I were to classify myself, I suppose I would have to say I am a radical which has the same source uh, as the word root. I think of radicals as people who want to get to the roots of things. I like this. Perhaps I'm not very good at it. But in any case, uh, my weak efforts at radical thought have caused me to reach strange and unacceptable conclusions. My close friends have come to tolerate my radicalness. Mormon church leaders have not. They suspect me of being a revolutionary, of being wild and dangerous. If they knew me as my friends do, they might conclude I am a very sedentary radical at best, one who reserves wildness and boldness to the realms of the mind, if that. Dallin Oak said he was certain I would sue the church. He was merely projecting his worst fears. Had he known me better, he would have realized I have neither the desire nor the energy to sue the church or to reform it. I only wanted to disagree, to be taken seriously, and to be treated as an equal. Perhaps that's radical enough within the closed confines of the modern LDS church. It's old hat almost everywhere else except places like China, Cuba, and North Korea. I must admit I am a bit of a fool to have expected to be taken seriously, me, an Italian convert, without family connections in Mormondom and no power base to speak from. People have said I am ambitious. Well, ambition should be made of sterner stuff. In addition to being badly positioned as a radical, my distaste for authoritarianism goes beyond the mild annoyance some people put up with. Uh, I suppose with me it's obsessional. 
I don't think I'm obsessive-compulsive, but I am frightened by deceit, non-disclosure, manipulation of information, and illegal, arbitrary, unbalanced, unchecked, unlimited, and undivided power, control, or force, which I believe constitute what the scriptures refer to as unrighteous dominion, and which, in my view, is the root cause of evil, if not the very definition of it. I am convinced that it is the nature and disposition of nearly all men, women, and children, when they get a little authority, as they suppose, to exercise unrighteous dominion. I am equally convinced that it is the nature and disposition of nearly all human institutions, whether they be political, ecclesiastical, commercial, domestic, economic, military, educational, or humanitarian, to behave as if their primary purpose were to serve the interests of those who are placed at the top of those institutions to guide them. The evidence of this lies, first and foremost, in the blatant resort at all levels of every power structure to use arbitrary force or deceit. Think of the FBI at Ruby Ridge, Idaho, or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms at Waco, Texas. Think of the promotions given to the perpetrating bureaucrats. Think of Watergate, the government's cover-up of the risks of nuclear testing to people downwind of the test sites the surveillance of members of the free speech movement in the 1960s, the medical tests conducted on blacks without their consent. Think of the protection that continues to be afforded to racists and police departments throughout the, the country and to misogynist and homophobic military personnel. This is not the place to multiply examples. There are many instances, great and small. Every time I hear another one, which is daily, I feel anxiety the fear of being deeply hurt by a powerful person or institution virtually unaccountable for actions taken in pursuit of the goal of serving the special interests of those in control. My radical perspective and my deep distrust of power are among the characteristics that define me. I'm not sure that being a radical anti-authoritarian qualifies me as an expert witness who can speak knowledgeably despite my effort to stay alert and aware. My grave doubts about my qualifications force me constantly to revisit my decision to write papers and give speeches. I persist in doing so, however, often merely to still my beating mind. On this occasion, I wish to respond to a speech given by Elder Boyd K. Packer, uh, acting president of the Council of the Twelve, although no longer a member of BYU's Board of Trustees. Elder Packer gave uh, a speech uh, over two years ago on May 18, 1993, to the All-Church Coordinating Committee when he was a senior member of the Council of the Twelve. It is in this speech that he identified intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals as the LDS Church's principal enemies. It is a short speech. I think it deserves to be quoted from before I comment on it. And here is my quote. Here is the quote from that speech. Surely you have been anxiously watching the worldwide evaporation of values and standards from politics, government, society, entertainment, schools. Could you be serving in the church without having turned to those pages in the revelations and to those statements of the prophets that speak of the last days? Could you believe other than it is critical that all of us work together and set aside personal interests and all face the same way? It is so easy to be turned about without realizing that it has happened to us. 
There are three areas where members of the church, influenced by social and political unrest, are being caught up and led away. The dangers I speak of come from the gay-lesbian movement, the feminist movement, both of which are relatedly, relatively new, and the ever-present challenge from the so-called scholars or intellectuals. When members are hurting, it is so easy to convince ourselves that we are justified, even duty-bound, to use the influence of our appointment or our calling to somehow represent them. We then become their advocates, sympathize with their complaints against the church, and perhaps even soften the commandments to comfort them. Unwittingly, we may turn about and face the wrong way. Then the channels of revelation are reversed. In our efforts to comfort them, we lose our bearings and leave that segment of the line to which we are assigned unprotected. The young man with gender disorientation needs to know that gender was not assigned at mortal birth, that we are sons and daughters of God in the premortal state. The woman pleading for help needs to see the eternal nature of things and that she will find no enduring peace in the feminist movement. There she will have no hope. The one who supposes that he understands the mindset of both the brethren and the scholars needs to understand that the doctrines of the gospel are revealed through the spirit to prophets, not through the intellect to scholars. End of quote of Boyd K. Packer. When I read this, I hear, when I, whenever I read this, I hear Elder Packer's voice, stern, calm, certain, authoritative. I find myself fighting the urge to interrupt the flow of his words with objections. I have not done that here, as gratifying as it might have been. I want to focus on only one question. Why of all the possible enemies of the church did Elder Packard target intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals, as opposed to, say, communists, fascists, democrats, liberals, anti-Mormons, racists, terrorists, the federal government, child molesters, slavers, serial killers, and so on. The obvious reason, from a conservative perspective, is that each group tempts church members to sin. Intellectuals, it is believed by many, lead members to commit the sin of pride. Feminists, it is said, lead people to act in ways that subvert the family. And homosexuals, it is argued, commit unchastity and perversion. From the mainstream Mormon perspective, these are probably good reasons, but why are feminist intellectuals and homosexuals more of a temptation than others? Aren't, more, uh, aren't Mormons more likely to be seduced by TV shows and movies than by intellectuals? More by Enid Waldholtz and Phyllis Shafley than by Betty Friedan or Hillary Clinton? More by Keanu Reeves when acting straight than when acting gay? Isn't the church more likely to be damaged by authoritarian church leaders demanding loyalty than by dissenters advocating freedom? If temptation were the real issue, wouldn't any of these other seductions be more likely candidates for Elder Packard's most wanted list? The real reason he targets intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals is because each of these groups asks church members to question the competence of their leaders. Modern Mormonism does not primarily offer the world new doctrine or liturgy or ethics as much as a surefire, fail-safe, and foolproof way to know the will of God. Basically, Mormonism offers the world the brethren, a group of divinely chosen inspired leaders who it is believed can be relied upon to help us live successful and respectable lives in this world and to achieve the highest glories in the next. 
Intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals, each in a slightly different way, call into question the spiritual reliability of the leaders of the LDS Church. Intellectuals, especially historians and theologians, insist on distinguishing authority from competence. Because someone is a church leader does not mean he is competent to utter the final word on music, history, sociology, or evolution. A leader's opinion on these matters demands consideration. However, an intellectual demands due consideration for the facts, the theories, and the opinions of experts. Church leaders, at least in the modern era, do not want to be held accountable to history, science, and the facts. They want to be believed and obeyed even when they speak contrary to the facts. They want their judgment to be accepted as if it were the judgment of God. They don't want that judgment to be put to the test. St. Paul said, prove all things and hold fast to the good, which means everything should be put to the test. We should, uh, we should let the nonsense be burned off like dross and keep the precious remains. Intellectuals put leaders to the test. They demand accountability. They demand that purported truths be examined. Most Mormons are put off by this approach. Mainstream members love and trust their leaders and see no reason to engage in criticism and discussion. They believe their leaders are inspired by God and can be trusted above intellectuals and so-called experts. This is what good Mormons believe, at least until it comes to brain surgery, computer repairs, or lawsuits. Though we may say we believe the president of the church is the prophet of God, no sane Latter-day Saints will go to him for brain surgery. No one will go to him to get a hard drive repaired or expect him to play a Bach toccata and fugue on the tabernacle organ or to draft legal briefs for a high-stakes legal dispute. In these matters, the saints rely on experts. So do church leaders. True, some would argue they would follow their leader's counsel on getting surgery or on what music to play or hear or whether or not to pursue a legal remedy. But this misses the point. Church leaders do and should have opinions about the proper role of experts and fields of expertise in our society, but that doesn't make them experts. It doesn't eliminate the need for experts, for intellectuals. It does not eliminate the need for discussion and accountability. The intellectual tradition is important for the very reason that it is a threat to authoritarianism. Truth cannot be the servant of any person or group. Scholarship is dedicated to the development of constantly changing data, which are measurable, verifiable, demonstrable, and repeatable, subject to interpretation, criticism, and further development. This is not to say intellectualism is the only or best approach for dealing with issues of ultimate importance. It is to say, however, that anyone claiming to dispense truth must take stock of and be responsive to this ever-changing database and must be accountable to all who seek truth. Church leaders do, do not want to be accountable in this way. They do not want to submit their opinions, decisions, and judgments to objective and certainly not to subjective tests. The intellectual tradition threatens them because it is fundamentally anti-authoritarian, because it insists that truth belongs to everyone in general, but to no group in particular, because it demands an accounting, because it subverts deceit and compulsion, because it levels the playing field. Intellectuals are often demonized as elitists. This may be true of certain intellectuals, but not of the intellectual tradition itself, which is highly democratic and encourages the questioning of accepted assumptions regardless of the source. 
anti-intellectuals are just as likely to be elitist as their intellectual counterparts. Elder Packer, in his relentless anti-intellectualism, demonizes scholars not for their elitism, for this would be the pot calling the kettle black, but because they assert an independent basis upon which to assess the competence of church authorities. Intellectuals can present historical facts that cut through the sentimental miasmatic fables circulating about our Mormon past. They present studies that demonstrate demographic facts about the current state of the LDS Church. They present alternate interpretations of cherished doctrinal traditions. They demonstrate that leaders have been wrong, are wrong, and will be wrong again, and therefore cannot be as trusted as they wish to be. For this reason, intellectuals are the Church's enemies. They are subversive of the Church's false claim to be a reliable arbiter of all truth and meaning. Feminists present another challenge. While intellectuals test the Church's claim to truth, feminists challenge the Church's claim to charity. Feminists claim that God's true Church devalues women, putting them on an unequal footing with men. In spite of protests to the contrary, church leaders systematically exclude women from input into church doctrine and policy and from administrative and leadership authority over men of the kind men exercise over women. This means the church does not recognize and esteem women as equals. They are neither equal in earthly things nor in heavenly things. Men command, women serve. Men preside, women sustain. Men control, women accept. Feminists expose the male bias that has contaminated all the Church's revelations. For the Church, two responses are possible that are consistent with the claim that the Church is divinely inspired. The first is that the male bias in Scripture, in the ecclesiastical and priesthood power structures, and throughout Mormon life is God-ordained. The second is that it is a gross and uncorrected misreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Predictably, church leaders have chosen the former explanation, insisting their misogyny is a revelation of divine will, and, to make matters worse, claiming, as they did when it came to the church's racism, that this condition will never change. Feminism demonstrates how the symbols and structures of the church are calculated to serve male interests, and only incidentally the interests of women, if at all. Feminism demonstrates that what passes for service is often self-service. What passes for charity is often self-interest. Feminists are enemies because they demonstrate how church leaders cannot be trusted to distinguish love from power. Homosexuality presents an equally great threat to the church. Sex lies at the heart of our being, our identity as individuals and as peoples. Homosexuality demands that we accept sex, sexual desire, and sexual orientation as elements of personhood. The modern world is threatened by sex. At the same time, it is obsessed with it. This schizophrenia is shared by the Church. Both the world and the Church publicly demand a separation of spirit from body. Both condemn passion and praise detachment. Both share the same hysterical erotophobia. Both prefer calculation and immunity. Both prize control and invulnerability over passion and exposure. Through its uncritical adoption of this view, the Church has become even more worldly, 
The church despises sex because sex, like love, makes us transparent. It destroys our immunity. It exposes our pain, weakness, and shame. Our erotic desires urge us to face others, see them, embrace them, enter them, become one with them, even when they are alien, when they burden us, when they threaten us, when they must inevitably change us forever, physically, spiritually, morally, and culturally. Sex shows us that the way to the soul is through the body, and the way to the body is through the soul. These ways cannot be divided without damaging personhood and ultimately community. This was true even before AIDS, which is a judgment not on erotophilia, but on erotophobia. AIDS makes clear to us our interconnectedness on a global scale. It is a revelation of our true condition. It teaches us that we are, as St. Paul so clearly saw, one body. It shows us that the damaging of one is a detriment to all, that the healing of one is a benefit to all. There are, of course, sexual sins. Withholding love is sin. Sexual exploitation is sin. It is a sin to love the body and despise the soul. It is a sin to love the spirit and despise the body. It is a sin to despise the desires of another or to control them arbitrarily. It is a sin to shame, humiliate, dehumanize, or control another through sex or because of sex. These are not sins of desire or passion. They are sins of calculation, indifference, and postmodern insouciance. These are sins because each constitutes an attempt to gratify without gratifying, to expose without being exposed, to infect without being infected, to judge without being judged, to criticize without being criticized, to embrace without being embraced, to penetrate without being penetrated. They are sins because they take without giving or give without taking. In Angels in America, the politically conservative Cohen has sex with men and denies he's a, a homosexual. Homosexuals, he claims, are passive. They have it done to them. He is not a homosexual because nobody ever does it to him. He does it to others. Homosexuals are weak. He is powerful. So powerful he can pick up the phone and reach the White House where he will be connected to the president or even the president's wife. For these reasons, he believes he is not a homosexual. Without knowing it, Cohen epitomizes promiscuity because he can have sex with many others while refusing to engage with them spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually. The sin of lust is to covet another's body without that person's knowledge or consent, reducing the other to an object, secretly consuming the parts that serve self-interest and discarding the rest. Homosexuality forces us to reevaluate and reinterpret traditional categories of good and evil, to reevaluate marriage and family, to reinterpret lust and love, to revisit taboos, to restructure the classifications that give meaning to us. In summary, intellectuals threaten to expose the church leaders' claim to know truth from error. Feminists threaten to expose church leaders' claim to distinguish love from power. Homosexuals threaten to expose church leaders' claim to discern virtue from vice. These three detested groups have one characteristic in common. They insist that their truth be considered on an equal footing with the judgment of the church. This is the essence of apostasy in modern Mormonism. 
An apostate is one who refuses to acquiesce to a purely authoritarian demand to subordinate personal judgment to the judgment of ecclesiastical powers. Intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals are the principal enemies of the church because they challenge the church's claim to promulgate truth, promote love, and proclaim righteousness. In my view, acceptance of the imperious claims made on a regular basis by the church is a form of idolatry. The church cannot save us. The reliable guide to truth as set forth in Scripture is the Holy Spirit, not the hierarchical structure of the church. Nor can the church teach us how to love, for that comes, uh, for that comes, it is said in Scripture, from God. The church's idolatrous claims are rebuked by intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals, which, though not without their problems, serve, contrary to the assertions of Elder Boyd K. Packer, to illuminate the failings of the church that has undoubtedly claimed too much for itself.